Good afternoon once again. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me into the book of Ecclesiastes. It's roughly in the middle. If you go to the middle and find the Psalms, it's a little bit after that. If you're new to the church, new to Christianity, if the Bible is still a very strange book, don't be ashamed if you need to look it up in the table of contents. We've all been there. Know what you're, ta- know what you're going through, know what you're feeling. It's also the text that we're going to consider this afternoon is also printed for you in your bulletin. We're going to be considering Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10 through chapter 7, verse 14. I have to find it myself here. It's small thumb. Oh, there we go. Awesome. When I was in 7th and 8th grade, um, every student in our school had this, these workbook-looking things called Wordly Wise. I think the intention was to increase our vocabulary. Um, it was, we, we, did, we worked through this every week of the semester, of each semester in our English classes. Everybody had one. It, it was usually by halfway through the semester, it started falling apart. It was a paperback thing, and we would work well to destroy our covers. But we, I was I'm fascinated by the name wordly wise because it implied wisdom. It implied that studying the vocabulary words that were contained therein would get us somewhere in this world and get us somewhere in this life. And of course, that was completely lost on my friends and I as seventh and eighth graders because for us, it meant more stuff that we have to regurgitate for an exam. By the way, I'm not mocking English majors. We were wrong, but it's just the reality of of the, the humor of it, the irony of it is We have this book that's supposed to give us wisdom about living, navigating life in this world, and for us it was simply something that we had to do to get past the next week, to get past the week after that, and the week after that. Ecclesiastes, though, is true wisdom. It's part of, scholars put it in this category of wisdom literature, which which has something, which means, it's 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 descriptive term of both its style and its purpose. So to, when we talk about wisdom literature in the Bible, what we're talking about is those books that speak to, speak to the purpose of applying it to our everyday lives. There is, an, there is an intention as we read the wisdom books in particular that this applies to us. That as theoretical as it may sound, as, uh, as lofty as some of the ideas may be, the intention is that we do something with this tomorrow morning when we wake up and roll out of bed. But it also, calling it wisdom literature, also is, is descriptive of the style in which it is written. You're going to see that as we read this text. Much of the wisdom writings of scriptures, of the Christian scriptures, but also of other scriptures, are going to contain short, pithy statements. And if, as we read it even today, some of them make you say, huh? That's on purpose? Because it's intended to make you think about what it says and what we're supposed to do with it. So as we read through this text, I'm going to read the entirety of the text for us today because I want you to hear some of those elements as we read it. I also want you to pay attention um, to the ways in which at points some of these sound like standalone sayings. And one of the things that we're going to talk through as we work through this text is is, how do these verses connect with one another? Because it sounds like these one-off statements that we toss out at parties to make us sound intelligent and make us sound smart. Um, But it's, it's far more than that. And so let's read together. I'm going to read for you actually. Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 6, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 14. Hear now the word of God. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death 
than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, where, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that, not, is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray one more time. Father, we receive your word. We believe it to be your word because that is what it tells us it is. We confess to you our need to hear. We confess to you our need to be shaped by these words. We pray that you would lead us, Holy Spirit, as we approach this word now. May we do so humbly and yet with the confidence that knowing that you will speak. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. An article I read recently spoke of our propensity to use our cell phones as a way of interrupting conversations with one another to, to enter into another conversation with yet someone else who's trying to get a hold of us. And the writer of this particular article said this, it's not an interruption, it's connection. But wait a minute, it's not really connection either. It's the, it's the, it's the potential for simply a different connection. It may be better, it may be worse. We just don't know until we check. We are so connected with one another, he writes, that we can't just be alone anymore. It's what, we, what's, what uh, commentators are starting to call the fear of missing out, or FOMO, which if you hate acronyms like that one, sorry. But it, we'll call it the fear of missing out. It's the fear of missing out on something more fun, on a social date that might just happen on the spur of the moment. It's so intense, even when we've decided to disconnect, we still connect just once more, just to make sure. We live in a world where this, this thing, this fear of missing out, is a reality. Behind this fear, and, and some, some would say it even causes them a measure of anxiety. I want to always be connected because my Instagram, my Twitter account, my Facebook, my email, I might miss something if I don't stay connected. And heaven forbid that I actually miss something in this world. Behind this, I think, is something even more telling about us than beyond our love of technology. You see, I think that we are increasingly less comfortable with our humanity. We are convinced that we can be everywhere doing whatever we want all the time. And we live with this thought that says, as long as I have my phone or my laptop or my, my tablet, as long as I have that with me and it's on and I can see it, I'm within an arm's reach of it, then I won't miss anything. We live with this thought that says, 
I have the world of possibilities open to me, and so I'm going to take advantage of every absolute possibility that I can. But where it leaves us is frustration, because that's not who we are. We're left frustrated with our humanity that says, no, you can't be in 10 places all at once. You really, no matter what you think, you can't actually have three or four conversations all at once because you're really having no conversations whatsoever. We're convinced that we can be everywhere doing whatever we want all the time. It's, that's actually where our passage starts. If you look with me at verse 10, the writer of Ecclesiastes begins with this thought. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. You see, he's addressing our tendency to want to define our existence and to want to control our existence by its definition. And he stands in the face of that when he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. The character of who humanity is, the character of creation, has already been named by the one who has created it. That's at odds with our perspective because we want to be the one who gets to name things. We want to be the ones who get to argue our own way. In fact, as we look ahead in verse 11, he says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? As if to say, you can try to explain it away, but you cannot. All you're left with is more vanity, which is one of the themes of the book of, of Ecclesiastes. And so we're left with this, with this struggle as human beings because we have the world literally at our fingertips. And you can, we can't be everywhere all at the same time, all at once, doing everything, whatever we want. So we're left frustrated. We're left frustrated. And in fact, we get the sense that that's, the, that's what he's after. If you look at verse 12, he, begins, he, he goes on by asking two basic questions. In verse 12, he says this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few, the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what, it, what will be after him under the sun? Two questions there. In the midst of living in a world that we want desperately to be able to control and that we want desperately to be able to understand and manipulate for our benefit, he asks these two questions for us. What is good for man and what will be after him? What is good and what comes next? The question for us, if this is indeed wisdom literature that's intended for us, to apply, to do something with, to shape our, the very lives that we lead. The question for us is, if this is the case, how do we embrace our humanity? How do we faithfully and honestly and dependently upon our Creator embrace the humanity that we've been given? I want to make the case today that, in particular, the rest of what I read, chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, give us three basic connection points for doing this, for embracing our humanity. The writer begins in the first six verses by calling us to know death. The part of embracing our humanity is to know our mortality, to know death. Now, remember, in verse 12, he asks the question, what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life? What is good? This is the theme that he picks up on in these first six verses. When we hear him say repeatedly, better than, better than, better than. Now, we need, I want you to understand, he's not trying to make absolute statements as if no, he is not saying no longer go to parties. He's not saying no longer laugh. That's the character of wisdom literature that, that we want, he wants to engage our thought and wants to engage our imagination to say, wait, what is he saying then? And what he's saying here is he's saying the wise life, the embracing humanity life begins with knowing death, 
Look at verse 1. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than, he doesn't say better than, but it's assumed there, and the day of death than the day of birth. Two days. One is full of promise, one is full of opportunity, and one is full of the plain facts that life is about to end. Verse, the beginning of verse 2, he goes on, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's a call to enter into the suffering of others, to the mourning of others. Go to the house where people are facing death, he says. No death. In verse 3, he says, Sorrow is better than laughter. Again, presuming that the, we, read the, we read these verses correctly, this connects with verses 1 and 2. The house of mourning versus the house of feasting, the day of death better than the day of birth. In that reality, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. In sorrow, we struggle and we grow. Then we get to verses 4 to 6, and he picks up on this thought of of, of the laughter and of the parting. He says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now understand, in the Bible, when we read the term fool... We don't mean idiot. We don't mean stupid person. We don't mean the people that we laugh at all the time walking around us. What we mean is the person who knows the word of God and chooses to reject it. The person who strives to live without eternity in view, without God in view. The house of the wise, the the wisdom, sorry, I lost my track of thought, train of thought. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He goes on in verse 5 and 6 to explain a little bit more of what he means by that. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of the fools. Those who are celebrating the shallowness of their own lives and of their own existence is what he's speaking of in verse 5. And then he gives explanation in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. He's not saying don't ever laugh again. He's not saying don't ever party again. What he's speaking against is the emptiness, the shallowness that says there is nothing in this world worth valuing and worth living for. And so we laugh just like tossing thorns in a fire that flare up quickly and burn quickly and give an immediate excitement and then quickly they're gone. That is the laughter of fools. Foolishness indeed is fleeting. He calls us to know death. And the reason for that is what we see in the second part of verse 2. He says, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He wants us to know death because it is the end toward which all of us are going. Death is the end. It's it's hinted at again in verse 8. It's what we all face. He says, "This this is the trajectory of every life that has ever been born. It is death. And because that unifies us as humanity, he says, part of embracing humanity is knowing that your end will be death. It echoes the words in Psalm 90 of Moses, who prays to God, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That part of embracing humanity with the reality of death is living knowing that you will die. Academic and public intellectual Cornell West spoke about it this way after, in 2009 after he was diagnosed with cancer. He said, wrestling with death, not simply as some event that's going to happen to you at the end of your life, but calling into question certain assumptions and presuppositions that you had before you arrived. That is learning how to die. To learn how to die in this way is to learn how to live. To let the end of the thing, and the end of life, 
define how we live the very life that's before us. That's part of what it is to know death. But there's something else that shows up in, the, in these six verses, which, which indeed colored the whole of our passage. And it is this, not only is, the death, is death the end that we all face, but know with confidence that death, in fact, is the enemy. It's what the New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death, beloved, is our enemy. It's why this passage is colored the way that it is. It's why when we read it, we should give pause. Because he actually says sorrow is better than laughter. He says, don't go to the party, go to the place where there is grieving. Humanly speaking, that should catch our attention as if to say something is not right. Because it's calling us to suffer alongside those who suffer. It's calling us to embrace an understanding that says not everything is awesome about this world. In fact, much of it is wrong and flawed and deeply disturbed. It's because death is the enemy. Death stands as an intruder in the world that God had made. We read from the early chapters of Genesis that God did not make the world with death as part of it initially. Death entered it through the temptation of Adam and Eve when they ate the tree that they were called not to eat. And God promised that death would be the result, and it is. And now we live under the shadow of its reality. But death is the enemy. Death does not belong. What does that mean for us to know death then as part of embracing our humanity? Part of where that leads us is to acknowledge we will not live on this world in this way forever. We can't ignore it. We, can't, we can try to ignore it. We can try to avoid it. But the call for us is to pray with Moses to God to teach us to number our days, to teach us to know that we have limitations because we will not live forever the way we think we will live forever on this wor- in this world. But it also means that death is the enemy for us, that embracing our humanity means it's okay to hurt at the reality of death. You don't have to pretend that everything is okay. You don't have to reconcile yourself with the reality of death in this world. It doesn't have to be okay. And when you lose loved ones, it is okay that it hurts more than anything else in this world because death does not belong in the world that God has made. It is under his power, it is under control, and he defeated it at the cross. We'll get there. But you need to know that grieving hurts, and that's okay. It does not make you less of a Christian. It does not make you less of a faithful person to know that death sucks. That cancer is a reality in this world that takes lives from people that we love. That children die all the time, and it shouldn't be that way. And it's okay that it doesn't seem right because it's not right. Death is the end, and death is the enemy. We keep reading, though, we're given instruction not only to know death, but given the reality of death at the same time, to know life. Part of knowing life is knowing the freedom that we have to look at the struggle, to look at the reality of death and say, this isn't right. It's what's hinted at in verse 12, if you look back with me there, where he speaks of, Um, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life. That there is an emptiness to trying to find meaning in this life. Life, you see, it lived under the sun, as as the preacher of Ecclesiastes has said repeatedly, is vain. Another way to say that is it's absurd. 
And what I mean by that is the dots don't always connect. And if you're, look, if you're looking around you and trying to make sense of every aspect of this life, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes repeatedly, even for the Christian, is that you will not be able to do so because life lived on this world is absurd. It is vain. It's part of the struggle. But in fact, he calls us to look at the struggle. Look at, look at verse 7. He calls it out. He says, surely, in verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. That, that the wise who experience oppression are driven into madness because it doesn't fit in a good world that God has made. And the very reality that oppression exists in this world causes us to say, this is not right. In verse 8, he goes on carrying that thought. He says, say not, or I'm sorry, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and patient in spirit is better than the proud, and patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. As if to say to us, there is value in patience in struggling through oppression. There is value in patience in struggling through grief. There is value in patience in living alongside those who frustrate you. It's not all about winning. It's not all about exalting yourself. Life is about more than winning. But know that there is struggle as a part of it. Then he picks it up again in verse 9, and he says, he says this to us, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. He doesn't say anger is wrong, but he says be not quick to anger. And he, he basically says be careful as you mourn and you grieve and you look at the struggle of this world and it makes you angry, he says, be careful. Be careful. Because when, when, when that anger finds its rest and home in your life, like it does in the fools, then it will destroy you. If that is the guiding principle in your life, is your anger at the world, he says, be careful, because that's the life of the fool, the life of those living apart from God. There's a, the call to know, to know life in the midst of knowing death is the call first to look at the struggle that is a part of life. It makes me think of Batman Begins, the first of the trilogy that I realized today was 10 years old. I can't believe I'm that old um, to, remove, to remember a movie 10 years ago that I still saw as an adult. But in, there's a scene in Batman Begins, which is the origin story of the Batman character, right? Um, there's a scene where, where early on we know that the background is that Bruce Wayne's parents were killed brutally in an alley one night after they, were, they left an opera early and Bruce Wayne, was the, the little boy at the time, was bearing the weight of, this is my fault because I wanted to leave the opera early. And so years later, as he's a young man, the man who, they, they, the police finally catch the man who they think killed his parents. And he goes to the trial to exact revenge and what happens is this man gets off free. Because of, a, a king, because of the corruption of the city. And so he, still, he, he takes another step to try to exact revenge on the one who killed his parents. And the assistant district attorney, the, the love interest, Rachel Dawes, shows up and she scolds him for basically, and basically says to him, look, Bruce, you're being arrogant. You think you can fix this problem by murdering one man? Let me show you the real struggle that people have in this city. And so she takes him under the streets and says, this is the real struggle. Look around you, Bruce. This is where the real corruption in this world is happening. It's much deeper than you and your spoiled brat attitude can understand and can see. She takes him to the place that he can't see to have a real look at the struggle. That's the call for us, to look at the struggle of life, to look at oppression and to face it, to look at death and to face it. But at the very same time, there's not only this call to, to embrace, to, to look at the struggle to know our lives, 
but it's also to live with wisdom and to struggle to strive to understand what it is to live with wisdom. It's hinted at in verses 4 and 5, but we really see it when we get into verse 10. The preacher writes this, say not in verse 10, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. He says, you, if you live your life thinking about what was at one point in your life and how that was, those were the glory days and I'll never get those back again and that's where I'm going to live. He said, that's not wisdom. There's no part of that that helps you navigate the daily life that you live in here and now because you're living back then. He goes on in verse 11 and he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. And then in verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. He's saying there is value to living wisely. Yes, this world is vain. Yes, this world is absurd. Yes, trying to understand it will drive you insane. But at the very same time, there is a call for wisdom that gives value to each day of this life. He's not saying the world is worthless. He's saying you simply won't understand it. And in these three verses in particular, he talks about don't live for the past. He says, if you have possessions, treat your possessions with wisdom and you will, you will find joy in that. He says, you will be protected by wisdom. You will be preserved by choosing to live wisely. Author J.I. Packer describes wisdom in this context this way. He says, to live wisely, you have to be clear-sighted and realistic, ruthlessly so, in looking at life as it is. Wisdom will not go with comforting illusions, false sentiment, or the use of rose-colored glasses. And so he says, look at, look at the struggle. He says, no life, look at the struggle and strive to live wisely with what you have in front of you. It's what we're called to. There is value in this life. My questions for us is begin with then, are you willing to look at the struggle of life that others around you are going through? And maybe even to add to that a little bit more, are you willing to look at your own struggle or are you pretending that it doesn't exist? Are you willing to look at what is difficult in this life? Are you willing to look at the, the hurt that people have that makes you uncomfortable? Are you willing to weep with those who weep? Are you willing to look at the struggle even though you have no explanation, knowing that you have no explanation actually? Are you willing to look at the struggle? The second question though is, are you willing to learn to live well in this life? That means, and, and trust me, I get horrified even that these words are coming out of my mouth, but that means thinking about things like your daily schedule. And that, thing, that means thinking about, maybe thinking about things like exercise, and maybe thinking about things like rest, like, which means not working apparently. And maybe it means things like taking a break, and maybe it means things like having coffee with someone who needs to talk to you. And it means a whole lot more things like that. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to learn to live with wisdom? Are you willing to live with words like budget and debt? And what do we do with that? And money. Are you willing to have conversations about money and parenting and disciplining your children? Are you willing to have those conversations? Because all of that falls into this category of wisdom, the dailiness of living in a life in which God is in charge of the world, though the, from our perspective the world will not make sense. Are you willing to strive for wisdom? And one more thing, though, that he calls us to. He calls us to know death. He calls us to know life. But where this passage ends, ends in the last two verses, 
is to call us to know God himself. In verse 13, he says this. He calls out to us. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's an uncomfortable phrase for us. He probably doesn't mean morally crooked or anything like that. He simply says, are you willing to look at the work of God and call the work of God things that you can't make heads or tails out of in this world? Why people are the way that they are. Are you willing to look at that? Because the call here is to consider the very working of God. To look long and hard and to to dwell on it. What is the work of God? And then in verse 14, he adds to that. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. He's acknowledging that there is true reason for joy in this life. You've heard Pastor Brian say this repeatedly during our our working through the book of Ecclesiastes. There is value to finding joy in this life. And there is joy in this life. In the midst of a world that doesn't make sense, in which we cannot connect the dots, he says, where there is prosperity, rejoice. Celebrate. Enjoy what God has given you. At the very same time, he goes on in verse 14 to acknowledge the other side. He says, in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. God has made the one as well as the other. What that means for you is that when life is not going well, That is not data points to tell you that God does not exist. When life is hard, when you are sad, it does not mean that, and I don't say this flippantly, forgive me if it comes across that way, but when you struggle, it doesn't mean that God has left you alone. How easy is it for us to live in that place where we say, nobody loves, what's the song, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat a worm? That's a thing, right? Is that a real song or something? A little kid song? Okay, sorry. Sorry, wow, just came to mind for me. Um... Back on track, John, back on track. In the day of adversity, it does not mean that God is not absent from your life because he made the one as well as the other. He is in sovereign control of every day of your life, the good days and the horrible days. He is always in charge. He is always in control. He has not left you. It doesn't even mean that you've necessarily done something wrong. It means that God is in control of your life in prosperity and in adversity. Where he lands, though, at the, end of the, at the end of this, to know death and to know life, to say this, to consider the work of God and to know that God has made the one as well as the other, what he's really calling us to is to know God himself. It's like the storyline of the Wizard of Oz, right? Dorothy is in the, 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 what they call it, a cyclone. They don't even call it a tornado. She's in the cyclone, which I think is a tornado. I'm pretty sure it's a tornado. Um, she's in the tornado, and her, her house gets whisked away into this other world of Oz, and she wakes up. And she doesn't know where she is. And she wants to go back home desperately. And she just killed, I think, the one person who could help her go back home. And so the the munchkins tell her, what do they tell her? They don't give her directions to go back home. They say, you've got to find the wizard. You've got to find the person who's going to help you. Now, the story's going to break down after that. But but just so we see the difference, she needs, she wants directions. And what do they say? She said, the answer's in a person. And that's the message here. The answer for us is not in an explanation. The answer for us is not in more more basic knowledge. The answer is in the person to know God, to know the one who is in charge of all things, to know the one who has given you the days of prosperity and to know the one who has given you the days of adversity. To know God is what we're called to. And so, beloved, we're called to celebrate. We're called to find joy in in the things in life that bring us joy. We're called to, to say, to acknowledge, it's okay to be happy. It's okay to say, I'm having a good day today. Things are going well, and I'm glad for that. 
that that can be a spiritual activity to acknowledge the goodness of a nap, to acknowledge the goodness of hammocking out in the out in the sunshine, to acknowledge the goodness of a good cup of coffee. You don't have to throw a party for every good cup of coffee that you have. But the tone there is to say, when prosperity comes, rejoice. Like, it's okay to be thankful for the good things that God has given you in this life. But at the same time, know that the days of adversity are from God as well. In fact, I would even say there's freedom for us to grieve the adversity that we face. Paul writes to the Thessalonian Christians that they may not grieve as others who have no hope. So he makes this contrast there to say, you can grieve, but don't do it as those who have no hope. And that's what he calls us here, because we know God. We grieve, but as those with hope. We can celebrate, and we can grieve. Notice then where the passage falls at the the last phrase of verse 14. He gives the explanation that all this happens, why? So that man may not find anything that will be may not find out anything that will be after him. He ends where he began began this passage with our humanity. God does all of this so that we may not find out what will come next, so that we may have to live with our humanity, so that we may have to live acknowledging we are not infinite creatures that have all knowledge and all wisdom and all insight. We simply don't have it, and that's on purpose. You see, we're not given all the answers. We're told, we're we're directed here to know death, to know life, and to know God. But we're never promised that it'll all make sense. We're never promised to have all the answers. The reality, though, of course, is that this is an impossible task for us to embrace our humanity with any kind of hope. Many have tried to, to embrace death, and it has led them to death directly. You see, the reality is we don't want to embrace our humanity. We want to avoid or ignore death, pretending that we will live forever in this life the way we determine. We want to define life on our own terms. We want to live without God, live without any sense of authority, choosing to do as we wish, when we wish, how we wish, wherever we wish, thinking we can do it all over the place all the time. It's an impossible task. And yet where the scriptures drive us is not to ourselves. Where the scriptures drive us is, in fact, to the cross where Jesus was put to death. Because at the cross we see death as the final enemy being defeated. Death, which is our enemy, is not something we have to overcome because it has been overcome for us at the cross. At the cross we see the source of life in the forgiveness and righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us. And we see the pattern of life as sacrifice. The definition of love in Scripture is sacrifice, and that's what we see at the cross. In the cross, we see the holiness of God and the love of God meeting. Because God in His perfection, in His holiness, in His not being like us, has to do something with the fact that we are rebellious people who live in sin. That The message of the Gospel is that God is holy, that God is God, and that everything else is not God. But for Him to be that, He has to deal with the fact that the things that he made and put value on, that's us, have rejected his authority and rejected who he is and live in rebellion to him apart from his grace. He can't just turn aside from that. He can't just pretend it doesn't matter. He can't just pretend it's no big deal and he chooses not to and we know that because of the cross. You see, while the call of Ecclesiastes is to embrace our humanity that we don't want to embrace, the message of the gospel is that God sent his eternal son 
the one who has always existed, and he embraced our humanity for us. He became flesh. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, the scriptures tell us. And he lived as both perfectly God and perfectly man, and he lived this life that none of us could even aspire to because of its perfection and its beauty and its truth and its grace. And that one followed the road of obedience to his father because his father had to deal with sin. Not his sin, but all of our sin. And the message of the gospel is that he dealt with that sin at the cross. And God in his patience waited until that point and he sent his son to the cross and his son said, I will go. And he hung on the cross and bore the wrath of God for sin. That is the gospel. That God in his goodness had to deal with our sin and he dealt with our sin by punishing the one who was eternally sinless. And three days later, that one rose again. Still a human being, still a full human being, he rose back again so that you and I might have life. Beloved, we embrace our humanity by living in repentance. We embrace our humanity by acknowledging that we can't do it. We can't make sense of death, life, or even God on our own. But God has done it for us by sending his son for us. Beloved, embrace your humanity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, it is overwhelming to think that you call us to face things that are hard, things that hurt, things that will continue to hurt, that you call us to sacrifice. And yet by your grace, it is the beauty of what you call us to because it is, it is by, by such living and such, by such dying to ourselves that we might know your life. Give us eyes to see death. Give us eyes to see life. Give us eyes to see you, we pray, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.